What you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. Hello and welcome to the Parliamentary Review Podcast, the podcast that puts leadership in focus. I'm Scott Challoner, and I'm here to introduce your podcast host today, Jonathan White, who each week is joined by directors, CEOs, CFOs, government ministers, chairmen, presidents, and maybe one day even the president of the United States. That is, if he is still the president by then. The aim is to discover who these people are who get up every morning and make the world work. Everything is up for discussion, including the future of British trade deals, to government reforms, to the Court of Appeals, and of course, the innovation and success in the country that makes it all worthwhile in the end. We also discuss their take on the current economic and political state of the country. Later on, you'll have the chance to hear Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Pickles, the former Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government, former Chairman of the Conservative Party, and of course, current Co-Chairman of the Parliamentary Review. But for now, Jonathan joins George Nixon of William George Holmes. Founded in 1998 and based in Battersea, this property developer's focus is very much on London and the South East. The resilience shown by Nixon and the business during the 2008 financial crisis has provided them with the bold approach it takes today in addressing large national issues, including the housing crisis. The negative publicity facing the property sector has enabled the company to redefine what it means to be a property developer in the context of the current climate. So without further ado, I hand you over to Jonathan and George Nixon. George, welcome. Uh, Good morning, Jonathan. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, today. Uh, I know there's quite a lot actually we could uh, talk about, and I thought it might be a very pleasant place to start. I know it's been uh, a while since, obviously, uh, William George Holmes has been in the review. I think the listeners would love to know uh, how you are, and most importantly, how business is going. Yeah, well, I think um, we're all sort of breathing a sigh of relief now that we've got some clarity in terms of the Brexit and the three and a half years of um, doing that. So sorry to bring that subject up first. But, um, I'm glad you said it before. I I sort of, yeah, the, um, I was using the analogy. I was chatting to somebody yesterday and I'd met him in August and it felt as though I'd met him in November, but the months just seemed to tick go so slowly at the back end of last year. Yes. And I think it's sort of the expression I used with him was that the sort of mist had cleared and now we can sort of see where we're going with business. And uh, there's definitely a, you know, a spring in the step, um, a bounce in the property market in terms of people showing interest and, um, you know, p- people are just a sigh of relief, to be honest. Uh, without a doubt. And I know we'll, we'll talk about this perhaps in a bit more detail uh, later, but uh, it seems extraordinary, doesn't it, that this year will be four years since we had that referendum. And I mean, I, I think to relate to your point, it felt like back in the earlier part of last year, someone said it feels like the 52nd of January because nothing yeah. ever happened. And it, it was a great frustration. One can only hope, no matter how you voted um, in the general election, uh, that now there is a government with a clear majority, at least there will be some decisions made. We shall see. Indeed. Yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, yourselves, though, at 
uh, uh, William George Holmes, founded now 22 years ago uh, this year. Congratulations. Now, the market, yeah, thank you. No, not at all. The market's changed so much in that time. Um, now, however, a lot of businesses uh, in the sector didn't survive 2008. And I thought uh, it would be uh, smashing... Uh, George, if you could perhaps go over how you dealt with the extraordinary challenge that uh, financial crash presented for yourselves in the market and, and what you did to learn from it. Yeah, well, I think um, it was very much a case of, in a lot of cases, more luck than judgment with people because, you know, if, if we all had, all had seen it coming, we would have, you know, made or done things about mm. our business style and pattern to sort of ensure we could survive and not have any headaches on the way through that. But um, I, I use the expression, I, we were somewhere, we weren't at the bottom of the curve or the top of the curve, we were somewhere in the middle, unfortunately. You know, unfortunately, we you know, didn't have a huge amount of land debt and land supply. Most of our stuff at the time was virtually built, so we could hang on to it, rent it out, and uh, weather the storm. And again, we're fortunate enough to have some funding, which on five-year fixed rates at a very low rate, just in time, uh, and came through it that way. So I can't actually say we we did anything clever. It was more we were fortunate to be in that position at the time, whereas I've got friends and so on in the industry who unfortunately had a lot of land banks and um, the banks just basically closed them down. Yes. So I think the lessons are, and we've all sort of learned, that um, you know, keep the leverage as relatively low, uh, try not to borrow too much from the banks and be a bit more cautious. Obviously, people got carried away back in 2008 and the year or two before that and thought this was just a gravy train that you know, was going to last forever. But um, pe- people older than me would always say, you know, it, it doesn't last forever. The bubble burst at some point, and uh, it was quite a big bubble to burst. Certainly was, and I think uh, a fantastically practical answer because I think you've pointed something out very clearly. There is that uh, anyone that says that they they had a a grand strategy for survival uh, before they knew what was going to happen isn't probably sure. completely telling the truth, um, and. Good business, no matter in recession or uh, uh, when the economy is booming, relies on the things you've just listed. Um, and I think that's 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 a superb takeaway. Um, yeah, I suppose I should, I should have listened to my father a little bit more. He never borrowed money. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he used to drive around in his, his car, and uh, he would see some of his, his friends driving these fancy cars, and he goes. Well, mine's paid for, his isn't. <laughs> that was always his analogy. <laughs> a good life lesson. Um, yeah. Now, what I also uh, want to talk about, obviously, you do so much uh, work across uh, London and the uh, South East. And uh, I, uh, maybe a couple of minutes on this, because it's something people do forget about, the importance, given you operate in the private sector, of actually having relationships and good working relationships with local authorities. Um, the importance yeah. actually can't be understated. It, it is important, and I do know, you know a certain amount of planning of planners or councillors in various bodies. Um, but it's also fair to say that they more recently have been moving around. So you're trying to go, oh, they were there, you know, six months ago, and they've moved on somewhere else. Um, it, it is a bit of 
it, it's good to have those relationships, but as I say, they are moving around a lot. Um, they are under particular pressure in terms of their time. Yes. And most, and you know, if not all, seem to be understaffed. So for us to, I don't know if we, we want to talk about that now, but for us as developers, it's a big, big, big frustration that planning takes so long. Um, you know, arranging meetings takes weeks, mm. um, particularly in London and the south of East. Um, I we did have a bit of an expedition up north towards Manchester, um, which I put in the parliamentary review, where we um, got planning to convert an old textile mill, which uh, in Stockport, which is about two hundred thousand square feet, mm. um, and the the councillors in Stockport were an awful lot faster and an awful lot more receptive to have meetings, uh, and very very quickly, so. And, and the, the other caveat to that was they didn't actually charge to have the preliminary meetings or the preliminary conversations. Now, isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah, so in London in the southeast, just to have a chat, you know, would cost a few thousand pounds just to have a preliminary chat. Whereas, say, in Stockport and Manchester, there are you know, open arms to come and talk about um, plans, uh, having investment brought into the local area. Because obviously we're bringing money up from London to Stockport, uh, and you know they're keen. Obviously, get like everywhere keen to get more housing, but they weren't actually charging, and they were not a lot quicker um, to actually arrange the meetings. Well, I, I, you know, I, since you actually in fact brought that project up because it was fantastic, uh, a fantastic project in Manchester. I think it was two hundred flats, was it? Um, yeah, two hundred and thirteen, and then commercial of about. 30,000 square foot. Well, over the last two decades, has there been a, a standout project um, uh, that, that you're uh, most fond of, perhaps? Yeah, well, that, that one's very pleasing for the fact that it, it was a brownfield site, obviously, because it's a, an established building. Um, and it's a beautiful landmark building as you come into Stockport. Um, so if, if, if it hadn't sort of been... Uh, taken and uh, the idea of converting it into residential, it may have become dilapidated and just be gone forever. But this building was built in 1870. And, you know, it's a landmark building, beautiful, beautifully preserved as it is, and just really needed some TLC and looking after and making it a viable uh, commercial project. Um, whereas before it was failing um, by way of some leases to, I think it was 40 odd, uh, commercial, small commercial businesses, but um, you know it, it, it wasn't going to survive. So it saved the building and given 213 homes or family households uh, to the area. Fantastic. Uh, and the only the only downside about talking over uh, the airwaves is that we can't uh, show a picture of what is a, a magnificent building. And now, of course... Yeah, no, it's on our website, williamgeorgeholmes.com. Yes. Yeah. So I'd, I'd highly recommend uh, uh, looking at that. Um, but stepping back, perhaps, if, if we can for a second, George, from uh, the business and look more broadly at the sector, um, in your opinion, what would you identify, perhaps, as the, the major challenges it will be facing in the next 18 months or so? Um, well, over the, I'd probably look longer term, so medium term. Mm. The next 18 months is very much uh, developers like myself um, agreeing probably more sites, uh, trying to find more sites and finishing off current ones 
But I sort of think the, the bigger picture and the longer term sort of conversation is a couple of main things besides talking about planners and the speeds and them, them needing more resources, in my opinion, to allow developers in to speak to them and get the plans through quicker. Uh, there's a couple of areas which there are stumbling blocks with for developers of my size in terms of affordable housing mm. and the actual build cost. So, you know, Sally Khan and, you know, a lot of the ministers are keen and housing ministers are keen to have more affordable housing. But we have a problem that developers such as I can't find the land at a competitive enough price to then give a tranche of um, the units as affordable housing. So we're being asked for you know anything between 35% and 50% of our units to be given over as affordable housing, which you know the government want lots more affordable housing, but it really isn't viable for developers like us to try and find sites at a competitive enough price to give that amount of affordable homes across. So in, in particular deals that we look at now, We'll enter into an agreement with you know two or three landowners and package it together, but we don't actually know until almost the almost the planning is complete uh, how much we can afford to give as affordable housing, and if the deal actually stacks up, and then quite often we have to walk away and go, well, we can't give you thirty five percent affordable homes because you know, we'll lose money. Exactly. And it, so, it's, a, it's an extraordinary system, really. I mean, reform can't come fast enough. And perhaps I'll put you on the spot, actually, George. I hope it isn't too unfair. But perhaps uh, this afternoon you've made Secretary of State. What is it you do, if you had a magic wand, what is it you do, uh, legislation or otherwise, that... Well, the, the second point I was going to make, aside from affordable housing, mm. is reining it back again to... Um, the build itself, the build cost. Mm. If you, you know, you don't have to be a mathematician to work it out. If it costs to build a typical house almost anywhere in the country, say a thousand square foot, you know, small family home, £150,000, how on earth are people going to um, make any money by building at £150,000 and selling it on to somebody? Uh, and then the actual person buying it being able to afford it because, you know, in the north, homes will be selling, say, a family home you can get for, say, 100000 £120,000 in some areas. But to build it, it will cost in the realms of £150,000. So the build cost in itself, I think, is one of the major, if not the most major, stumbling block in terms of us wanting to build more homes quicker. So if you put me on the spot, I'd say that it needs to be looked at that building costs stroke labour needs some sort of subsidy to increase the levels that developers are able to build. And I think it's something uh, for, for, a, for the best part of a decade now, uh, the government, whether it's whichever prime minister it's been headed up by, has echoed uh, more or less what you've said, but very few things seem to have been done. And I think a lot of uh, voters will judge this government on whether or not they're able to deliver on, on, on the promises they've made on housing. And that, gosh, that's going to require a lot of work, and especially with uh, businesses like William George Holmes. Yes, yeah, so I say, it, 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 you know, the variables are planning, 
uh, affordable housing and build costs. And within the build costs, you have labour. Um, and I think I may have mentioned to you the other day that uh, I've got some ideas on labour labour costs and how to have skills increased uh, in the UK on that. But those, those are the three challenges, really, I think. And I know, and you're right, you, you, you have... Um mention this and perhaps if we could go in a bit more detail about that, George, because um, I know you're a big advocate of, of getting uh, the next generation interested um, in construction, especially with the right skills we need to develop in this country for that. Um, do, you, do you tell us a little bit more about that, George? Yeah, so um, I suppose the building industry isn't seen as glamorous um, and I, I think you know, it's, it's quite male-dominated. Mm. I don't know if you watch The Apprentice, um, but there there was uh, one of the one of the finalists, I think, and that's one of the ladies who was trying to get a more um, diverse num- number of people or individuals involved in the construction industry. So she was trying to get more minority groups uh, and ladies involved in the construction industry um, because it was you know severely lacking. And I think there's. Um, you know, companies out there who want more diversity within the businesses and employ you know more ladies and so on. Um, but I think the younger generation is really where we need to focus in terms of getting people interested in the construction industry. Um, with Brexit, you know, the likelihood is we'll have less people coming to the country yeah. from Poland and wherever. You know, the, the analogy of Polish uh, plumbers coming here, uh, a lot of them gone back to Poland. Um, so we need some homegrown talent yes. and homegrown skills here. So, you know, it's something we're hoping to launch in September uh, under the under the label Get Building. So we've got the domain getbuilding.com and the company Get Building Limited um, is to have a non, non-profit organisation or scheme whereby we will contact local schools in an area and also contact the local developers, you know, such as myself, and put the two together and ask the developers to, you know, spare a morning once a month, once every couple of months, to show some of the kids, you know, teenagers from local schools around the building sites. Um, You know, it it, it would all be done with health and safety in mind, but to introduce the two parties together, and by doing so... The students see a building site, you know, working, what goes on, maybe show an interest in that. The site managers or the developers get the opportunity of showcasing their development sites to the local community, to the local kids, who will ultimately go back and tell, you know, their parents, you know, what happened that day. And it's sort of a bit of a win-win scenario that, um, you know, the, the teenagers get to see working sites maybe show an interest in that and the developers get to showcase their developments and put something back into the local community. It, it really is. And I have to say, George, um, I think, of course, at the heart of this, uh, and I will we'll call it a problem because if, uh, as you've identified, because of uh, uh, a lack of perhaps technical skills in this, this country and of the younger generation, because we have relied on um, skilled foreign labour, there yeah. is a, uh, it's been going for decades, there has been almost uh, a lack of respect if you decide to take a technical education in this country. Um, 
And I think it's the, the Germans do it very well. And perhaps this will, this scheme should be part of something broader from government, hopefully, that will say, um, sure, it's a great thing to go to university, do it if you should, but there's also age 16 or, or whatever. Go and find a skill and you'll be uh, fixed for life. Yeah, you know, they, they, people sort of, well, some people suppose look down at the, the professions in terms of um, working on site, but, um, you know, a well-run site, it, it, can, it can be enjoyable for people to work on, and they have a skill and something they create, obviously, they're creating a building and something to be proud of, at, um, you know, once it's completed. So I think it's, just, in my opinion, is just generating that interest at a young age. You're right. Um, and I, and I, I hope, George, when you said that, that will be launching in September, and I hope uh, we can yeah. uh, perhaps uh, talk again uh, for its launch, because uh, you're right, if, if at, the, at the moment, if, if kids uh, don't have any exposure whatsoever to uh, a, a construction site, how on earth are they going to want a career in it? No, exactly. And I think, you know, I'm happy just to um, launch it. And, you know, initially I'll be talking to developers I know, which should open the doors relatively easily to getting people in. Uh, everything, you know, would take all the boxes in health and safety and so on before people turn up. You know, but all the sites these days are so well run in terms of health and safety mm-hmm. and, re- and regulations that there shouldn't obviously be an issue there. And start in the southeast, and then broaden it um, throughout the country, uh, and then maybe come knocking on the housing minister's door at some point and say, "Right, this scheme's up and running." Um, you know, give us some support for it as well. Absolutely, but, uh, it, 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 it's, it's non-profit. I just like to think it's you know for us as William George Holmes putting something back into the community as well, and um, you know, no doubt there'll be spin-offs at some point. Um, which you know can be good for us all, but it's very much a win-win I see for the developers as well as the local communities by them supporting it. Um, without a doubt, and I, I, we could talk about this um, for another half hour, uh, George. But I'm conscious of the time. Um, for what I would ask sure. you, actually, um, uh, what advice would you give to uh, young people that are actually considering um, a career in the sector? Yeah, well, I think you know people as was. Um, are showing my age now. Um, maybe looking at careers on uh, on TV, um, Facebook, and all the rest, which probably is a lot to answer for in terms of children being directed down the media or you know that that sort of direction. But um, I think for for children just to open their eyes a bit broader, um, the construction industry, you know, without doubt, is going to be huge over the next 10, 20 years in the UK because the demand is there for properties and the labour isn't there at the moment. So there's a huge opportunity for uh, teenagers, uh, undergraduates and so on to get into that field and do very, very well because they will um, their career paths will go very, very quickly because there just aren't enough people at the moment. So there's a great opportunity for people to find a niche or find an area that they like within the construction industry because there's lots and lots of different mm. styles of jobs within it, whether it be design, architecture, working on the site, site management, engineering. Um, so there's a broad spectrum that's bound to be something that most people um, or most teenagers would like. 
Well, it's sound advice, and uh, yeah, as we come to a close, I, I would ask actually, George, what are um, uh, uh, William George's Homes plans uh, for the year coming? Uh, apart from, of course, the very exciting um, get building scheme. Yeah, well, the get building is, is, is you know something in the background, but um, no, we're very very excited. We've got a couple of large projects that are just kicking in over the next couple of weeks, and um, I was in a man for. Uh, a few days at the beginning of the year, just um, getting some sunshine before coming back here. And um, you know, there's one particular scheme which we're now involved in in Croydon, which um, is very, very exciting. Uh, so we we don't have an awful lot to do do this year in terms of increasing what we have. It's just sort of consolidating what we have, um, which is a nice, comfortable position to be in. Well, uh, George, thank you very much. Uh, for coming on today. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully we can speak uh, again soon. Yeah, that'd be a pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed Jonathan White's interview with George and especially learning more about the challenges facing the property sector and how the whole team at William George Homes continues to raise standards. If you've not heard it before, coming up now is Jonathan's conversation with the Parliamentary Review's co-chairman, Eric Pickles. Lord Pickles served as Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government in David Cameron's Cabinet before receiving a peerage back in 2018. Lord Pickles remains active as the United Kingdom's anti-corruption champion and the special envoy for post-Holocaust affairs. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Eric. Here it is now. Lord Pickles, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Um, now, I'm sure you won't uh, mind me reminding the listeners that uh, you've been involved in politics, both local and national, for quite a number of decades. Um, indeed, before we, the days we were in the common market. Um, you know, given your experience over those years, um, what thoughts have you had over the last few weeks and months about the current political uh, situation the country finds itself in? situation is quite dire because we have um, a parliament that um, is by and large useless. It's like a bored teenager on a long drive and um, it wants, it knows what it doesn't want and it's so bored with Brexit but it can't agree. So no matter what you put up, it's against it. Are you in favour of a referendum? No, I don't want that. Are you in favour of uh, remaining within the single man? No, I don't want that. Are you in favour of... No, I don't want to do that. No, no. And are you in favour of leaving without a deal? No, we don't want to do that. So it's against everything. But it, there isn't enough votes to be in favour of something. And it could be by the time this, this podcast goes out that, that uh, Boris has uh, started on the process of the bill because we'll be voting on that today. Uh, but even then... What people don't seem to understand, this is not the end of Brexit. This is barely opening the door of Brexit. We've got years of negotiations about about trade agreements, relationships with uh, with Europe, putting uh, putting down pieces of legislation. We get our agriculture, our fisheries, our financial services into place. Brexit is going to go on and on and on and on. I'm, and sure, on and on. I'm sure we are. Um, now uh, the question is, I should actually remind listeners that we are talking on the day that the second reading of the European uh, Act uh, will. Uh, take place. So as we speak, we don't quite know. As 
or perhaps like the government front bench don't know what's going to happen. Um, you compare Parliament to a petulant teenager, what do you do to a petulant teenager to sort it out? Um, is there a chance that it will see sense and push this through this bill without wrecking amendments? Is there a chance it will vote for its own, uh, for a general election? What do you, how do you see this playing out at the moment? The sensible thing will be to put this deal through because I've always been of the view a deal is better than no deal because this is just the beginning. In order to start the process of Brexit, start the process of uh, the United Kingdom taking over powers that it's, uh, it's not really exercised for 40 odd years, the smart thing is to get this thing through now. But in a way, it's not about Brexit itself. If there was a free vote, this deal would have gone through. Mrs May's deal would have gone through. But it's about politics. It's about a Labour Party that thinks it has a chance uh, trying to make the Prime Minister, whether it was Theresa May or Boris Johnson, uh, look as though that they are uh, in office but not in power, of um, delaying as long as possible. There's a lot of talk about um, an election uh, in the autumn, maybe back end of November, beginning of uh, of December, uh, something for us to look forward to before Christmas. It's beginning to look less likely. It's beginning to look as though they might want to drag it into spring to get as far away as possible um, from the rather decisive moment that uh, Boris came back with a deal. We have to remind ourselves that nobody thought he could deliver um, a deal and it does quite shock them and I, if you remember all this process went through in order to ensure that we are left without a deal when we have a deal suddenly well no it's not that kind of deal we don't want that kind of deal we want something different I think the vast majority of people in this country whether remain or leave uh, now would be very satisfied for this to come to a able um, conclusion and as correctly just said, uh, because when it does come to those on, in the opposition who claim to want this to work, and then to, uh, uh, introduce wrecking amendments, they introduce uh, new objections to it, the general public are getting quite frustrated. But you've got to understand that quite a lot of people don't get beyond a small area within Westminster, sometimes cliche referred to as the Westminster bubble and go back to their own patch. Now, by and large, everybody hates their MP, except when they're at home, doing the fairs, doing, you know, uh, wandering around, uh, helping people. So they, in a way, they're cosseted to that great, which I feel is coming in a tsunami of change. I do, uh, of course, MP for Brentwood for... Uh, uh, 25 for, years. Absolutely. Um, what would you, I mean, of course, you... President there as well, despite being a proud option, obviously, representing a good Essex seat. What would you say to your, your old constituents right now? Hang in there, it'll be all right? Well, um, uh, you're, uh, it's different when you're a member of parliament because, you know, you've got to kind of toe the government line a little bit. So one thing i found now is I've got my weekend back and I say what I want. And uh, I think I would say to... Um, our constituents is that it is pretty hopeless, don't they? Thanks, Mark. On that, uh, I think, uh, honest assessment, 
it's something I think the Parliamentary Review has always done quite well, talking frankly about problems, issues, and also not just good practice, but leadership. Well, I always used to, I mean, I always used to read it when I was a, a member of Parliament, um, because, I mean, what you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found uh, it quite a, um, uh, a kind of a chatty magazine, but also you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. I certainly have attended um, the receptions over the year, and it's amazing the things you kind of pick up. And I think it's important to stress it's not because uh, uh, politicians are, are, are uninterested, because honestly, as you will know more than anyone, it's an issue of time. And to be able to have a channel uh, and a platform where you can keep communication lines between businesses, schools, and Policymakers, it's so exceptionally important. No, I think so, and you know, and it's important that it's beholding to nobody. People, um, uh, you know, pay for to be part of the publication, pay for to be uh, um, members, and it's a way of not beholding to government, not beholding to anything. Uh, now, uh, echoing the words, of course, your fellow uh, chairman, uh, Lord Blunkett, has said, uh, so, what some might not know uh, is that you started your political journey perhaps even further left than David Blunkett. Oh, absolutely, I was a communist. Now, uh, what, what, uh, what was it? At the age what? of 14, I got... Uh, I was bought um, the um, <clears throat> Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, and I read it from cover to cover. I tried to read it a few years back, and I just couldn't follow anything. Oh, so I was going to say, perhaps you might know the minds of the uh, show front bench better than, better than they do themselves. From my position when I first joined, I would regard them as recalcitrant uh, <laughs> running dogs of the capitalist system. Now, what was it that, that uh, moved you from radical Marxist to running uh, the only uh, inner city council controlled by the Conservatives in the 80s? Well, I was very young, and um, I was fascinated by what was happening in um, uh, in what was then Czechoslovakia and uh, Dubček, and the the revolution that was taking place there inside communism, and the way in which uh, he was uh, repressed by uh, by uh, by Mr. Brezhnev, yeah, and the tanks and taking over. I was so angry. And I'm 16, remember? I'm really angry. I thought, what's the most outrageous thing I can do? Um, I will join the um, I'll join the Conservative Party as a protest. And I kind of sticked around. And my family thought it was the funniest thing that ever happened uh, to us. I was Eric the Tory. And um, well, I think you announced this quite grandly as a, as, a, as a grand protest. I did indeed. But, um, do you know, I kept going down and... Um, it was a it was an exciting time. Um, people were developing the ideas of what the Conservative Party should be. Selsdon man, even Heath looked radical. We had different ideas, and just it eventually clicked. And at some point, I became a Conservative, and that was fifty one years ago. I think I'm definitely one hundred percent a Tory now, through and through. Through and through. Although I do know the story. Uh, most most uh, people might guess that a, 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 cons a dialogue conservative like yourself would have perhaps a portrait of uh, Mr. Satchel or Mr. Churchill in their office. But uh, who is it that you have? That uh, um, Che Guevara, uh, which always I always had him over my uh, left shoulder 
of visitors and they always used to kind of you see their eyes going up and thinking who yeah, can't possibly be someone asked me if it was Desi Arnaz I thought it was married um, <laughs> to Lucille Ball but no the reason I, I did that was to remind me and to remind my uh, officials that without constant vigilance the cigar chomping commies would take over <laughs> I, I'm sure David Bunk was in the room to reply to that actually um, but um, in, in, in that long journey you eventually ended up of course in 2010 doing something most conservatives would never thought they would have to do but in a coalition government with the of all people the Liberal Democrats that's right now um, something I think perhaps today more than ever uh, people and our politics seems to be almost wholly determined um, on how we voted in a referendum three years ago. Yeah, I mean, the most normal thing would happen after something like that mm. would, be the, would be the country would come together. And if anything, we're, we're, we're more divided. I mean, I thought working in the coalition, I'm proud to have been part mm. of that coalition. Um, I'm proud to have worked alongside the Liberal Democrats who I think realise that like all minority partners in a in a coalition that would suffer at the polls. Do you think we've lost the ability uh, recently as a, as, a, as a people to work with those that we might disagree with on, on issues more than we used to? I'm not sure that's right. Um, I mean, you can see various members of the Conservative Party working closely with Liberal Democrats and Labour to defeat their own government. But it's not a thing I think I would want to encourage. Quite. Um, and I, I should remind listeners, we are calling this the in Victoria, um, just over the road at Cardinal Place, uh, a fantastically new de de development site which wouldn't have been there without some of uh, your uh, uh, legislation. What was the proudest? I personally approved it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what was the proudest moment do you think in uh, serving secretary for five years? It's uh, my actual proudest moment. We did a thing called uh, Triple Families, which was the first centre-right uh, attempt to deal with poverty and to deal with um, difficult families that were causing a disproportionately large amount of um, of, of call upon the um, uh, upon the state. And it was on the basis of tough love. It's on the basis of getting people into jobs. It's about dealing with. Uh, uh, the kind of the whole, the family as a whole, not just one or two individuals that, had a, that were having a problem. And I'm pleased that it's continued. Um, and since, I should very much stress, since of course you're uh, stepped down being an MP, you do have your weekends back, but that's not to say you haven't remained very active and very um, uh, busy. Of course, because you're the government's anti corruption uh, champion, shone the harsh light of day over malpractice in the local government, um, indeed, the Queen's speech. We've just had include some of uh, your recommendations from uh, 2016. Um, I think a couple of things on that. First of all, are you surprised? Um, I may imagine you may not be at some of the backlash towards in this country introducing uh, voter ID for voting. It is absurd, and it's particularly absurd coming from the Labour Party, because it was largely Labour's vulnerability uh, that got my interest in trying to do something about it. And um, it's a bit like saying, you know, you're requiring people to show some ID uh, that this is suppressing voting. It's a bit like saying the post office is suppressing parcels because they demand to see uh, uh, some ID. I think um, they've got um, uh, a bee into their bonnet that this is something like the good in the state to repress it's not mm. it's about giving confidence to the system now the electoral commission and foreign observers 
service have warned us for such a long time that our electoral system is vulnerable. And it's, it's to misquote um, uh, John Major, we are really sort of old maids cycling to Evensong and, and Warburn. Yeah, it, it's such a basic thing. It's an important thing. And it was kind of interesting uh, in some of the trials, um, they did um, a focus group with a bunch of uh, young uh, Asian girls. And they said they thought the process of photo ID would actually give them a greater confidence in the fairness of the system. I meant to make all kinds of uh, recommendations to stop uh, postal vote harvesting. Uh, to, for, to, to stop various fraud taking place, to stop um, intimidation at counts, to stop intimidation outside polling stations. Uh, I think you referenced it earlier, the, the Westminster bubble, a lot of the, the places where this occurs and the places where this does go on are places where perhaps uh, many members, many people in the press don't usually go to. No, they, no, I don't. Uh, we saw a YouGov poll that said the overwhelming majority, well in the 60%, thought these, this idea was sensible. Yeah, and I, 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 um, I, I imagine you're quite proud that that recommendation is uh, in the speech. Yes, I mean, I'm a bit frustrated they didn't do it sooner, but it's, nevertheless, I'm very happy that it, they, they are doing it. It's as if the government's time has been taken up by something else and we've not focused on anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but with a man, though, with his roots in uh, local government, uh, do you think, and, and how much you've worked with, this, with that report, especially looking at them carefully, how would you rate our current state of local municipal politics? Local government's very good. I mean, local government, don't get me wrong, it's, uh, it's by and large corruption free and it, do, it does a remarkably good job. And it was, in truth, my worries about local government and that these measures were brought in. I don't believe the fraud is big enough to be able to take a parliamentary seat, but it is big enough to take a council. And if you are negligent, uncaring about the probity of the poll, you're likely to be equally negligent about the awarding of contracts uh, 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 to your friends. Uh, so it's, it's all passed up. But look, government is, is a very enduring part of our constitution. I got a bit stick because we had to take some money from them, but by and large, they survive very well. Excellent. Now, uh, beyond um, obviously, uh, that work, you also, of course, uh, the British envoy for uh, post-Holocaust issues. Yeah, sure. I think very dear to your heart. Um, I know you've done some fantastic uh, work recently, including with uh, a former Shadow Chancellor from the Review, uh, Ed Balls. Um, would you mind, uh, if you could just let the listeners know what projects you are working on with that and, and really the importance that has to so many communities around the country? Well, I used to be very unpleasant about Ed Ball and he used to be very unpleasant about me, but I found working with him uh, remarkably easy and we've not had a, a single row in two years and by now we're beginning to be able to, to finish each other's sentences. We're building a, a memorial to the Holocaust uh, next to Parliament uh, with a learning centre below it and the reason why the Prime Minister chose that site is that um, it was David Cameron and he wanted to ensure that when people left the memorial they would look and see Parliament and recognise that he was the last bastion against tyranny. 
but more important to remind people who work in Parliament that that the legislature has a choice. It can either protect its citizens or it can oppress its citizens. And we do know that um, uh, that it was a compliant legislature that brought in the Nuremberg uh, laws. And at a time when there are parts of Europe that are seeking to rewrite their history and seeking to see themselves as only the victims of the Nazis, I'm determined that we should tell the truth in an unblinking uh, way. Um, we are, I suppose, at a critical crossroads when the last survivor is likely to uh, be no longer with us within the next decade and a half. And at that point, we do know that um, uh, history starts to be reassessed. I think it was Simon Sharma that, that talked about this. And he was referring to the French Revolution. And of course, most of the books written in the 1850s are the ones that have uh, shaped um, our view of the French Revolution. But the difference is this, that uh, slightly over 100 years ago, my grandfather, Edgar, mm. grabbed hold of his Lee Enfield and walked out of a trench in the Somme and walked towards um, the Germans. And within a few minutes, uh, most of the people he'd been, he'd been brought up with, most of his friends were dead. Nobody doubts that he did that. But there's a whole industry out there that doubts that the Holocaust took place. So that's why it's important that we help frame that narrative. And, uh, and you reference as well, it's, it's, it's so important, especially at this, this time, this time of history, so many years afterwards, that uh, people, young people in schools get the correct education about it. How do we compare as a country in doing that compared to some of our European friends? We're, we, um, I think, compare remarkably well, uh, and particularly because we've got a mixture of things. Uh, we, ins we ensure through the lessons of Auschwitz that two pupils from every secondary school go to Auschwitz each year, uh, that they have a preliminary meeting, uh, a visit and a, a wrap-up. We ensure that um, Holocaust Day um, uh, is remembered in January, now I can remember starting that, uh, or I'm not starting it, but being part uh, of a foot soldier of people that put it together. And you know, it's like one man and a dog, but now it's quite a, a massive, it's, it's a massive um, event. So I think we are quite good at remembering that. I think where we perhaps do need to have a wider understanding is beyond the death counts. And we need to kind of understand uh, the Anstatt group, which was the roving murder squads, um, how um, important they were. You were more likely to have been shot in a ditch than to end up in a, in a death camp. Um, and uh, they, the interland of that is Lithuania, where I was uh, last week uh, talking to colleagues and through, through Belarus and the Ukraine. And it's really important that we ensure that we we register where those death sites are. And I think uh, certainly, uh, and I'm going to sit down next to speak, which hopefully won't be too uh, long away. It's and I think we'd be very happy to, to keep updates on how that how that project is going because it's so important. And people do need to be aware of it. Um, looking to the future, though, um, I imagine we're actually very uh, content and happy. Former Prime Minister, friend and colleague David Cameron, just released 
this book and you came really quite unscathed from it. I came out, it was very nice about yes. it. Um, I even bought the audio version because he was reading it and he obviously, you know, but there was a fair bit of affection and, and, yes. and I'm rather glad they left out one or two of the other embarrassing things. <laughs> Maybe another time. Yeah. Yes. Um, but um, it's um, important, I think, uh, and I'm conscious of the time, so, but I'm, I think it's important that today people have become so perhaps um, caught up in what's happening in this country regarding Brexit. Um, looking to the future, how would you, and what would you say that it's a positive thing that, that this country has to look forward to? Well, we're a large trade. We're a large trading nation. We're a large uh, economy. We're a liberal uh, uh, democracy, and it would be good to get through uh, Brexit over the coming years, and it would be good to start to look at some of the social issues uh, that we need to tackle. Those have been left behind uh, by our economic uh, uh, progress, and it would be good to see some solid investment in this country, both in terms of its infrastructure, but also in, in terms of the way it operates as a democracy. And I know that it can be a huge focus of the next review. Uh, Pickle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. As always, it has been a pleasure listening and learning from our guests. I and Jonathan hope you all enjoyed listening to today's podcast. Until next time, Jonathan and I are off to the Westminster Arms to raise a glass to raising standards. Or at least we would be if all of the pubs weren't closed. So in this instance, Jonathan's front room will have to do. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.